It's actually a bit of a shame I wasn't able to go through this game co-op like I would have preferred, because this game is co-op. I'm going to say that one more time, just to make this clear. This game is co-op. Do you know how many other games of this variety, like the GTAs, could have benefited from a proper co-op mode? Do you know how much more that fun that made this game? And Saints Row 3, and Saints Row 4, and so forth and so on. I, I, I gotta be honest... I never really got into Saints Row 1, probably at least partially because of the fact that it was on a console I didn't own and never had any particular plans of doing so, but also because it was uh, it was effectively just a Grand Theft Auto clone. I mean, I don't, I don't really mean that as an insult, more of a statement of fact. It was a Grand Theft Auto clone. There was nothing really significant or distinguishing about it to keep it from most of the other GTA clones that were coming up at the time. SR2 was like, well, hang on, hang on. <clears throat> Let's make our own thing. And what's funny is SR2 was, if you'll remember at the time, kind of lauded as being the, shall we say, wackier GTA. Kind of like the old GTAs. If you remember, SR2 came out right about the time at which Grand Theft Auto 4 came out. And so served, either deliberately or not, as a perfect counterpoint to the GTA series. For those of you not aware, GTA 4 is probably the darkest, you know, and most generally depressing, tragic, you know, horrible of the GTAs. Whereas SR2 was going for more of a, yeah, let's go do wacky stuff, right? Now, it wasn't quite full-on wacky. There was still quite a bit of severity, and it was still fairly grounded. But this felt a lot more like, say, San Andreas than it did... Four, right? Or even Vice City, for that matter. It also... Uh, so, so in addition to differentiating itself in tone, it also had co-op. Now, I liked Grand Theft Auto 4, but I loved Saints Row 2 because I could play it with a friend. And as soon as Saints Row 3 came out, I was like, yep, let's go, and played it with a friend. And as soon as Saints Row 4 came out, and you get the idea. So... It's kind of obvious to me, in hindsight, how this series became something I am such a fan of. And to this day, I still loud it as enjoyable. Personally, not counting one, which I still, to this day, have not played all the way through, I would say the only weak point in the series is three. My opinion, of course. This game and four are basically tied for my favorite. Four did a lot of things very, very right, and was in many ways a celebration of the series and the people who made it, and just general fun. 2 was a lot more serious and a lot more dark, but still knew how to have fun with itself and still came across, again, in a more grounded variety. It's, it's actually difficult for me to compare Saints Row 2 and Saints Row 4, given how fun, fundamentally different the two games really are. Um, this game in particular also has a very arcade feel to it. Again, kind of in contrast to where Grand Theft Auto 4 was going and several other games are going in this time as well. Because, you know, the driving, the running around, the shooting are all very, very arcadey. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is going to depend on your opinion. For me, it made the game a lot more just generally fun to play. At no point did I go, ah, because of control issues or because, I, you know, my character was doing something I didn't want them to do. There's also a little bit more of justification of the side missions. <laughs> I'm looking at my notes here. There's vague. There's some justifications of the side missions, like the mayhem, for example. You know, keep keep the cameras off me, or the spraying. Well, you know the mission. Uh, <clears throat> unlike three, which basically had no justification for its side missions, and there's also a decent variety to the side missions and the stuff you can do. Again, kind of unlike three. 
The tone is something I really want to touch on again, though, really briefly, if you'll forgive me here. Because this is probably the most Dragon Quest of this type of game that I've seen. Now, some of you probably, especially if you're new to my channel or don't really know what I'm talking about, are like, what the heck is Dragon Quest? I call it Dragon Quest Effect. It's something that has the appearance of being something you know, lighthearted or silly and fun that when you dig into it is actually very dark and tragic and horrible. Just like Dragon Quest. Um... Well, this isn't fully Dragon Quest effect. Uh, this is still definitely leaning in that direction. We have, you know, ah, and you could you could dress yourself up however you want. And you could be like my own character, for example, was a very pale woman who uh, had you know bright purple hair and wore like combinations of blue and purple outfits, and uh, just wander around, you know, gutting everything down. Yeah, and this is also the same game that includes mercy killing one of your own people because he's been tortured to death, among other things. So. You can see how there's that kind of tonal shift between the two. Also, what I find interesting is that this is probably one of the more interesting rags-to-riches stories of this type. Again, any GTA-style game has this typical rags-to-riches approach, with only a couple of exceptions. In other words, you start off as you know, a grunt or uh, you know, a member of a gang, and then you slowly crawl yourself up to being in a position of wealth and power. In this case, it's taken a little more extreme because you start off as someone, and there's even a cutscene to highlight this, where you have taken over, quote-unquote, by, by virtue of killing everyone else present, you have taken over a what is effectively a sewer, and you are manually carrying your own, like, like the bodies out of there to try and dispose of them. By the end of the game, you are not only in charge of the entire city in terms of gang territory, but you also have your own fingers, and of course, this this is expanded on more in the DLCs and the side missions and in Saints Row 3, but by the end, you actually have your fingers in the major corporation that runs a lot of stuff. So, very stark contrast from beginning to end there. One other thing I want to talk about really quickly here. What's funny is if you sit back and think about it, for a long time everyone assumed that the Saints Row series was a prequel to the Red Faction series. Uh, same general developers. I don't know if it's the exact same development team or not. And, of course, Ultor is in fact a corporation that links between the two. Thing is, based on Saints Row 4, I don't think that's really true anymore. I'm not going to spoil Saints Row 4 here, but anybody who's played that game knows what I'm talking about. So, not sure how Red Faction fits in anymore. Now, I say that because that's interesting to me, since Agents of Mayhem does neatly fit into the Saints Row series. Agents of Mayhem is a direct consequence of the ending of Get Out of Hell. And again, I will not spoil anything, but all I'm going to say is that that basically means it goes from Saints Row 2 all the way up to uh, Get Out of Hell, which then goes into Agents of Mayhem. Maybe Red Faction happens after Agents? I don't know. Anyways, <clears throat> moving along. So let's talk about, uh, so I've got my notes here, and I almost universally have notes about the characters. I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about the player character briefly. Uh, the player character is, uh, actually, before I talk about the player character, let me, let me actually take that back. I'm just going to refer to them as the boss. My boss was always female. Uh, partially because I like the female voice actress better, especially in Saints Row 3 and 4, we could have that uh, that Eastern European voice actress who's awesome. But uh, let's talk about Troy. So, first of all, <laughs> I actually know a couple of people who played this game and were like, who the heck is Troy? Because a surprisingly large number of people played Saints Row 2, having never played... Oh gosh, I just realized the background's been on pause this whole time. Uh, 
Ignore the last eight minutes of paused background. <clears throat> Sorry, I had the wrong indicator up. <sighs> Troy is from Saints Row 1, and of course a lot of people who play this game had never played Saints Row 1, because Saints Row 1 was Xbox exclusive, whereas Saints Row 2 was available on uh, PlayStation and, PS and the PC, and every Saints Row game since after that has, has been available on a larger variety of consoles, so... There's a lot of people who to this day have not played Saints Row 1 that are still considered fans of the Saints Row series. It's one of the problems with this kind of exclusivity thing that I'm not going to go into because that's really a completely separate topic. But Troy is from the first game. Now what I find interesting is we don't really see or learn a mod about Troy. He's in a couple of cutscenes where he's just like, eh. But, oh, excuse me, this time through, pardon me, this time through I noticed something. Right at the beginning, right when you're being wheeled up and they're like, hey, you know, they've come out of the coma. Ah, I guess we better go tell Troy. It's one of the first things they say. And I don't think I ever caught that before. Now, I did know that Troy was the one who was keeping us on life support. And Troy was really upset with Julius for trying to get us killed. And Troy is the one who was actively trying to prevent the Saints from being in jail. In fact, is the main reason why Gat is only now recently going into jail rather than previous to now, which is what should have happened. I find all that interesting, because Troy's a cop, right? And he's, I mean, hes he, I'd say he's a corrupt cop, but he's a weird example of one, because his strongest trait is arguably loyalty. He retains a surprising amount of loyalty to his old crew. In fact, there's a, there's a quote from him directly, which says, I don't want to arrest my friends, so if you just drop your flags and go home, I don't have to. I find that interesting, and it's just weird because it adds a little bit of additional dimension to his character. There's a lot of characters in this game that have that are basically two-dimensional. They're not fully fleshed out, but they're more than the typical archetypes that you'd expect from a game like this. Troy's a good example of that. Um, so let's talk about the missions in the order I want to do them in. So the, brother, the usual order I do them is Brotherhood, Samdi, and then Ronan. Uh, so we'll talk about the Brotherhood first. I really found it interesting going through the Brotherhood motions this time, especially knowing everything that's going to happen. Because Marrow, voiced by the ever-awesome Michael Dorn, who absolutely nails... By the way, great voice acting overall in this game. I think that really adds to the flavor and personality of a lot of the characters. I can't even remember the, the name of the gentleman who voices the General, for example. I've heard him in other stuff as well. But he manages to absolutely perfectly nail exactly that, that specific slice of character that he is. But I'll, I'll talk about him later. So anyways, Mero, he's like, oh. What I find interesting is that Mero was surprisingly intelligent. And I guess the word I want to use here is respectful. Like, he just acts like he's another dude. Like, hey, let's go, let's go. And he is completely... I'd say affable is actually the word I want to use, right up until we throw his offer back into his face. That's when he starts to get upset. And then we get even more upset, and then he gets even more upset. Now, we do see he has a wee bit of an anger problem, probably as a result of, kind of some kind of steroid thing. I mean, look at the guy. But ignoring that, I found it interesting that the whole Brotherhood storyline started because we provoked them. The Marrow comes to us and says, yeah, all right. You want to join in on this? We'll, we'll have an alliance between us. You'll, you'll be a part of this whole weapons shipment thing we got going on. And we'll split it 2080 and we'll work together. Now, that may sound like an insult. But it's only an insult if you have a massive ego like the, the boss does. 
Because, remember, the boss, by the time in which you can get the Mirror Mission, especially if you do that first, like I did, has Gat, a couple of other people who vaguely resemble lieutenants. You know, Shandi barely qualifies. Pierce barely qualifies. Carlos. <laughs> Carlos is the definition of green. Green-purple? Anyways. So, you, you got nothing. You're, you're like, hey, we control this one neighborhood kind of a gang. And to be offered 2080 in a situation like that is actually a huge bonus. That's, that's like, oh, dude, yeah. And a smart business person or someone who actually has a brain would have taken Marrow up on that offer. Instead, of course, we say no. And then we just kind of start pushing and pushing. And we have the beginning of a pattern. All three, well, really two, but the two major story arcs are actually... Most of the story arcs in this game revolve around the cycle of violence. You know, you pushed me, so I punch you. So you stab me, so I shoot you. You know, that, that's a truncated analogy, but you get the idea. And so... <laughs> so we decide... It, it's funny, we're like, oh, we need to go after this shipment. We need to go after Marrow. All right, well, I can't figure out how, but basically just for frickin' cuz, why don't I go ahead and put radioactive waste into his tattoo ink? Now, that's petty to begin with, and really doesn't accomplish anything. He's just doing it because he was insulted by Mara, right? So, then they retaliate. Actually, I should say more specifically, Jessica retaliates. Now, I find this interesting. I never found anything that specifically confirmed this, but I was, with the, was of the opinion that Jessica is the one who actually made the Brotherhood into a faction. Like, Mero's big. And he's reasonably intelligent, but he doesn't have business savvy. He doesn't have the concepts of, you know, doing a job or running an organization. Whereas Jessica is the one who's constantly thinking about the long-term, shall we say, more political connections there. And it's interesting because that means Jessica and Meru combined actually form a nice pairing there. One of them is very personally powerful, Meru, and one of them is very politically savvy, Jessica. Between the two of that, you got a strong combination. It is also worthy of note that the moment we kill Jessica, the Brotherhood starts nosediving in terms of quality and what they can accomplish until it boils down to just Marrow pretty much saying, all right, I'm going to kill you because I've got nothing left at this point. Which we pushed him to. Now, that being said, <laughs> it's really weird how the game tries to go out of its way to make you feel bad for characters while also presenting them as horrific. I liked Carlos, damn it. It actually still bothered me to this day. You know, when, when I was going through the the Carlos the mission where I you try to rescue Carlos, it still bothers me to this day what happened to him and having to mercy kill him was just, ah, you know, Ugh. and um, so you know I wanted Jessica to go away. Then you take down Jessica, and what's really messed up is if you check the uh, news stations prior to as as you're driving her off to the. Uh, to the monster truck rally, you'll find out that she is actually called in, although this makes no sense when you think about it, she's actually called into the radio station and asked for their song, her and Mero's song, to be played on the radio while she's in the trunk of your car. And then, of course, you know, Mero loses it. They don't show that as well in this game as they could have. They mention it in Saints Row 4, where Mero just... Everything else was just, all right, whatever. But going after her was a line for him. And I want you to remember that. Because Mero, this was still just kind of a, a petty feud until you killed his girl. At which point, it, that crossed a line. 
and now it was something more than that. He was willing to go up to the top of Ultracor and, and threaten the CEO and then fail at doing so. Oh, and, and Dane Vogel makes an interesting appearance in this one. Don't worry, I'll be talking about him later. And that leads, of course, to... Well, basically, Marrow just kind of keeps pushing and keeps pushing until we have Marrow and the boss, and the boss walks away after shooting him in the head on a flaming pile of wreckage. And I find that to be a very apropos visual metaphor. Also, did you notice that, I mean, just several things the boss does, <laughs> like like the, with the guitarist, you know, and the inker, it's like, all right, <clears throat> what's up, dude? I, uh, listen... You've given me the information you want, but I'm not going to kill you. Instead, I'm going to burn your hand beyond recognition, which effectively kills your career as both a tattoo artist and a guitarist. You're welcome. And we do that for no reason other than petty vengeance. It's not even vengeance, it's just pettiness. But I'll talk more about the boss later, like I said. Let's talk about the Somdi arc. Now, the Somdi arc is the one that interested me the least. I like the concept of the general as a character. I really do. But for the most part, the Somdi arc was just kind of, eh. I mean, it was nice to see Shandi uh, as this Shandi, and not the Shandi she became in the next two games. I know that sounds weird, but I actually prefer this Shandi. Um, she's a lot less of a... Um, a son of a submariner. I think we'll put it that way. And, um, and she's also someone who is actually really, really useful to an organization like the Saints. She has connections, and she has planning skills. She's not good in a fight. She's not a frontliner. She's not a... Uh, there's actually a term for that. I can't think of what it is right now. But she's not the person that goes out and actually accomplishes stuff herself. She's the person to make sure that those things can be accomplished and gives the information so they can be accomplished. You know, she's the guy in the chair, to use a recent concept, or a recent phrase that I heard that refers to that. And she's really damn good at it. And I find it funny because... There <laughs> There's several scenes in Saints Row 2, which I forgot were here, where the boss flat-out threatens her in such a casual way that you'd almost not notice it unless you were paying attention. And it's just like, damn. I mean, just damn, okay. But then again, the boss is a horrible person, as we've talked about. So, Shandi, of course, leads us to Veteran Child, who has a dumb name, and I'm never going to call him that ever again. I'm just going to call him Stupid. So, Stupid, of course, is another interesting parallel, because he's effectively the going through the same arc that Shandi is. They're both in over their head. They're, they're just druggies who know people, you know. He, I, I always got the impression that he just started doing the whole drug dealing on the side thing, because it made him money, and money's good. Whereas her, I actually have no idea why she joined the Saints, i got to be completely honest with you. Maybe because it was making her money? Maybe because it was fun? Maybe she was high when she decided? I don't know. But what I do know is both of them are clearly in over their heads. The boss is an absolute destructive machine, and the general, well, he's kind of the exact opposite of that. And that's why this is the first good parallel. So... Marrow to the boss is kind of a one-to-one -one parallel. Both of them have a lot of similar traits. They're intelligent, and they're willing to do way more than... You know, they're willing to go way farther than other people are. But neither of them are really the runs-an-organization type, you know, the, the planner, the organizer, the knows people, the contactor, the politician, basically. And both of them... 
uh, both of them are have no problem being extremely violent when necessary. The general serves as more of an inverse of the main character, of the boss, because the general is someone who will say, yes, I would like to have the, 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 the foie today, and maybe a little bit of a side of wine, and please chop off the hand of my enemy, and also I would really like, you know, the point being, he's closer to a true sociopath, at least I hope I'm using the right term there, because the general doesn't care. Like, to the general chopping off someone's hand is acceptable and normal. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with doing something like that. Why would there be something wrong with doing something like that, right? It's completely average. It's just part of an ordinary day. He's so disconnected. He presents that kind of perspective of the, this is just life. He even apologizes to his lieutenant, Mr. Sunshine, uh, while he's chopping off his ear with a dull blade. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, a machete, really? Because it's just normal. It is purely business. And business is just an everyday thing, so there's no reason to get worked up about it or to care about it. He serves as a slightly different type of arrogance. Mero, of course, had a type of arrogance, but that was more of a alpha male type thing. You know, I, I am in charge of this organization, and we're going to do things the right way because we do things the right way. You know, a, a pseudo-honorific code kind of a thing. The general, by contrast, has an arrogance of, well, I'm better than you. I am superior to you, and you are beneath me. So we're going to do things my way, and we're going to do them the right way. He even almost has his own person, veteran child, killed for basically no reason. For what amounts to just, eh. And of course, what he does to Mr. Sunshine is also basically for no reason. Failure has happened, therefore there has to be a price. It's just business. So, of course, the general then dies. Uh, I don't have much to say about Mr. Sunjain. He's basically just a zealot. Uh, I mean, I, I really don't know what else to add to that. He is a deranged zealot who has way too many drugs flying through his veins. What's funny is when I was first seeing the cutscene where he wouldn't go down, my first thought was, just chop off his head, dude. <laughs> Come on. And then, of course, the boss does end up doing that. I don't actually think I have much else to talk about with regards to the Somdi. So let's go ahead and move on to the Ronin. Ah, the Ronin. The Ronin is an interesting concept to me. The Ronin is probably the best story arc, in my opinion, of, uh, of Saints Row 2. So we have four characters who all serve as, let's say, different paths, uh, or different, different perspectives on the criminal path. First we have Gat. Now let me just go ahead and say something. I think it's kind of weird how the recent games, most notably Saints Row 4 and Gad Out of Hell, seem to think that Gad is basically some superhuman demi-being. I've always found that kind of weird, and I'm not sure where that came from. Shrug? But that does kind of line up neatly with what I'm about to say, in that he's basically a GTA protagonist. No, seriously. He is Car uh, CJ from from San Andreas. He, he's actually kind of similar to Clyde, although honestly that's kind of mean. I think CJ is probably the best direct comparison for him. He plays, I, I shouldn't say plays because obviously we don't play as him, but he, he comes across as the player character, except slightly less horrible, if, if you understand my men mentality. I, I'm, let me put this a different way. If the boss didn't exist, Gat would be the playable character. There, let's put it that way. Because he functions as one in his attitude, in his mentality, in his cavalierness, 
There's there's a scene towards the end where he's like, ah, hang on, I'm killing some more cops. I'll, I'll be I'm not running out of bullets anytime soon, so I'm good. You know, I mean, I can come home whenever. And it's like, okay, <laughs> pretty much. You could just hear an actual player playing the game being like, hang on, let me kill a few cops. I know I'm at five star wanted level, but just I just want to get a few more here. I've got like 600 ammo left. You know, can't you just perceive that as happening? But the other interesting thing about Gat is he's. I, I related him to CJ, because unlike, say, Clyde, who was just a completely deranged psychopath who didn't care about anything, Gat does care. He cares about his crew, he cares about Aisha, Ish, and he cares about, you know, the things that he likes and wants. There's even a great scene where he kills someone on the carpet, and he's like, hang on, I, I, gotta, I gotta clean this up. You, you good without me? And of course, Isha apparently ends up in heaven. But what I want to talk about is there's a scene that helps to emphasize Gat's character with two very simple words. Get up. I honestly don't feel like I, there's anything more I can add to that scene. Those two words really help pull it together and in such simplistic tone. The voice actor nails it. it, it the, the tone and the presentation of that says everything you need to know about Gat. Get up. Let's talk about the Akujis, and uh, actually let's talk about Pierce really quick. Pierce doesn't have an arc to himself. He like pokes his head into all three of the other arcs. I find it weird that Pierce is basically a wannabe in this game, and he's almost universally looked down upon by the others. I say that's weird given where he goes in the next few games. Pierce actually becomes, ba ba Pierce effectively slides over and takes over Shandy's spot as the idea person and the planner and the organizational side of things. And Shandi just kind of gets relegated to... I don't know what else to call her, really. Like, she doesn't really have a, a functional purpose, narratively speaking or organizationally speaking, within the Saints in 3 or in 4. But here, Pierce is just like, I could do this. I can make this work. I, you know, I got, I got this. And I always found it weird because at first I thought maybe they were going for a joke. Like, that was the running gag, was that Pierce is useless. But it comes off as more malicious than a joke. I honestly, like, obviously, you know, I've played these games before, but if I was playing Saints Row 2 for the first time, I would think that it would be leading to a point where either Pierce betrays us in order to try and get a leg up. You know, he's got that kind of, I want, you know, I'm looking out for number one, or ambition, not, not looking out for number one, but he is ambitious. He wants to move up the, the roster. So I could see him as trying to betray us to accomplish that. Or maybe he just pisses us off sufficiently that we finally just shoot him. Neither of those things happened. He's such a weird inclusion in two. But I also want to talk about, so let's, let's talk about, and I wrote down his name so I could pronounce it correctly. Junichi. <laughs> that took me a moment. Junichi. Um, Junichi is in many ways similar to the general. This is all business. You know, this is just professional. I have to do what I have to do. These are my orders, etc. Junichi is interesting to me, though, because he is arrogant. Really arrogant. I am better than you because I hold myself to a standard. Now, both parts of those are integral to his character because it's not just I hold myself to a standard. It's not just I'm trying to do what I believe to be honorable or just. It's I am doing this and therefore I am better than you. He constantly looks down on Shogo and he constantly looks down on the boss and Gat for that matter for their actions. 
And I find it interesting that, once again, they've made a character who has both positive and negative qualities, you know, two-dimensional, and also make, make, then makes me want to kill him very, very much, because he kills Aisha. And, goddammit, why would you go after her, of all people? She was effectively a non-combatant in all of this. And I admit I feel a little responsible, because we went to crash at her house, and if we hadn't... He wouldn't have known about it, and so that sucks. I wonder if Aisha is in Agents of Mayhem. Anyways, <clears throat> let's talk about Shogo. This is interesting. This is probably one of the only truly subtle character things they do in Saints Row 2. I mean, again, they do the two-dimensional thing quite often. But Shogo, the first scene we see him, he's pompous, he's an he, he's, he's an asshole. Let's just say it bluntly. He is a straight-up jerk. I mean, he, he takes the guy's honorific sword to open his beard and then shoves the guy out without tipping him, of course, and is just and treats the, the girl who is giving a massage like she's property. He's slime. But he's smarter than he has any right to be, and he has daddy issues. Now, let me explain both of those. The, the, the daddy issues are easy to explain. You could tell that most of Shogo's descent and failure is because he wants to live up to his father's legacy. He wants to, tr to prove his father that, you know, make his father proud of him. He fails at every turn, of course, but that's for reasons I'll get into in a minute. And so, it's funny because in many ways, if he had just kind of been willing to accept the, for lack of a better term, American way of doing things... You know, in other words, if he had just kept doing business as usual, he probably would have managed this and turned out on top of the heap rather than slowly suffocating inside of a coffin. But he didn't, because he wanted to prove himself to his dad. I'm going to talk about his dad really quickly before we get to the other thing I want to mention about him. Uh, his dad, I had to write down his name because they almost never say it, uh, Kazuo, Kazuo Okuji. <laughs> Quick aside. The scene where you, you stab the, the sword into his back and allow... Uh, oh, God, I can't think of his name. All of a sudden, Hojo, uh, Tojo, I think? Uh, the, the, the Chinese gentleman. It's like, here, I got you a present. That was great. It helps emphasize something about the boss, too. I'll talk about that later. But Kazuo, he is, of course, again, arrogant. It's kind of a recurring trend. But his arrogance is very different. He holds himself, he's a traditionalist arrogant. The old ways are better, I follow the old ways, therefore I am better. That's his mentality. I am better than you because I follow the old ways. I adhere to my particular code, and I'm not willing to deal with the gangs. I'm not willing to deal with the corporations. He pretty much brushes off Vogel and Ultor, which is an extremely stupid move and pretty much directly leads to his eventual downfall. And, of course, his continuous contempt for his son also helps to contribute directly to his downfall. It's funny to me because he's the kind of person who walks into a situation with completely filled with confidence that he will be able to resolve it, but he does so with outdated methods that would work back home. When you have people like, let me check his name real quick, Junichi, when you have people like that working for you and the enemy, then this sort of method, this traditionalist method that uh, Kazuo uses works. But nobody really follows that in 
Oh my god, I can't think of the name of the city all of a sudden. In the city. It's not Stillwater, is it? <laughs> I can't believe I can't think of the name of the city. Um, in the city, the game takes place... I'm gonna, I'm, the, damn it, I've just damned myself, because now I'm going to get 30 comments telling me what the name of the city is. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work in, in the, the game, the area in which the game takes place. And so he tries to apply that. Everything blows up in his face, and he ends up dying in a fire. Literally. Which brings me back to Shogo. Because the Ronin were very prosperous and doing very well financially and in terms of connections until Kazuo showed up. I'm serious. Think about this for a moment. This is the subtlety I mentioned earlier. This is the brilliance of this. Because Shogo is portrayed as this slime ball who you just want to punch. And yet for all of his disgusting qualities. And he is a disgusting human being who I took tremendous joy in watching him suffocate inside of a coffin as we buried it. Get up. I have to say that he at least had business savvy to adapt. He was capable of looking at the way things worked in, insert city name here, and said, okay, work together with Ultor, worked through the system, and basically bypassed the rules to make the Ronin prosperous and have a controlling interest over the city. All of that falls apart the moment they try to do things traditional. It's Shogo because he's trying to, uh, to represent and, and get the approval of his dad, and his dad because... We've already talked about that. I, I just find that absolutely hysterical when you really think about it. I still love killing both of them, which I suppose brings me to Ultor. I don't have much to say about Ultor, as much as I wish I did. Obviously, they're an omnipresent background thing, and they're basically the main villains of the game series itself. Uh, and by the game series, I mean the game, not the whole game series. Obviously, we take over Ultor after this. But... Dane Vogel is an interesting character to me because he is... I, I want to call him a zealot, but I feel like that's not the exactly perfect word. He is someone who is a true believer in the concept of political power. He is the kind of person who truly believes he is untouchable so long as he makes sure that the right things are, are in the right places. As long as he ensures that he has this backing and this money and these connections, and these guards, and all that, he is untouchable, and he can do whatever the hell he wants. And he doesn't do that casually, though. That's the thing. Of all of the villains I mentioned, you remember, the one thing I keep pointing out is the arrogance. But Vogel, weirdly enough, isn't arrogant. He is more than willing to humble himself in order to accomplish his goals. And that's why he's the real villain here, and why he's the most dangerous character we meet. He's willing to walk in personally to the saint's own home and say, Hey, got some info for you. You can keep me. You can keep me as a, uh, as a hostage. It's all good. And he does that. The first time Mero barges into his room, he's like, Okay, yeah, sure. And he follows through on his bargain and says, Yeah, we'll get those people out. We'll do this. The second time Mero barges in, he's ready for him. That's why I mentioned that as long as he's using the system. It's not like he literally has God mode on. It's that he has to be prepared for eventualities. And I like that. It's, actually, it's strange how much I like Vogel as a character. He is absent most of the typical slimeball qualities of a character. Instead, comes across as a, an immensely ambitious man who is smart enough to know what is required to accomplish that ambition. 
In fact, one of the other things I find very interesting is that he does have genuine vision for the future other than himself being on top of the heap. It's not just, I want the benefits of rule. He also wishes to rule. His maneuvering with, with, the, with the districts and the gangs and, of course, removing the chair, the board, are all excellent examples of that. Thing is, Vogel is, a, is effectively a politician, in, in a good way and a bad. But my, what I mean by that is he is utterly and 100% dependent on political power. And I've, I've said this so many times in my show, and it has been so true so many times. What is the one thing that can penetrate political power? Personal power, a.k.a. a gun to the face. And Dane Vogel, appropriately, while renegotiating, while talking his way out of the situation, using his strength, he end up, ends up falling, literally, because he's shot in the face. Because he can't do anything about that. Not really. Which brings me to the boss. Now, I wrote down a couple of notes I want to talk about really briefly. There's some surprisingly good, I guess, character development that's in the background that helps to add to the boss's character. And I have two examples of this I want to share with you. The two that I felt were noteworthy enough to jot down on my paper here. One is, there's a bit, I think it's during the, the, the Brotherhood sequence, where Shandi is like, hey, let's go play skeetball. And the reason she says so is because she thinks we're just getting way too uptight about this whole thing. So she's playing skeetball. I just realized some of you might not actually know what skeetball is, especially since you know arcades have kind of been dying out. Uh, it, you got a lane, similar to bowling, but except instead it's up, slanted upwards, and there's several circular targets you're trying to reach up there. And you have like a, a small rubber ball you can hold in one hand, and you're supposed to roll the ball up there, and so that it bounces and then lands in the holes. Okay, so skeetball, really thing. It's a nice, fun little thing you used to do at arcades to get. Ripped off, or unless you're really good at it, in which case you get a lot of tickets and you go buy that ju jukebox. How many of you know what a jukebox is? <laughs> uh, I'm not old, I swear. So, she's playing skeetball, just like this. Boss grabs a ball and does this. Now, it's not really. They do, this is why I, I call this some good visual storytelling. They don't really call attention to it. The two are just con conversing and basically doing your typical pre-mission you know, discussion. As he, but the whole time he's like, Ugh! and he's just pitching these balls as hard as he freaking can up there. And we even see them like bounce off and go hit a couple of the people in the background and just plong, plong. That says so much about the boss's mentality and emotional state without having to say a damn thing. It's brilliant in its own way. Another excellent one, which is actually even more horrible, there's a scene when Ultor decides to attack the Saints' headquarters. And the boss is there flirting with a waitress. Then the guys attack, and the boss deliberately grabs the waitress and shoves her in the path so that she will be the one shot instead of them. Then he burns them and her alive. Well, I should say she's probably dead by that point, but you get the idea. Again, brilliant visual storytelling. That the boss can so casually and effortlessly go from, so you're kind of cute, to body shield. Says everything you need to know about that character, really. Which brings me to the boss. The boss is, this is one of the truly rare times that we play a type 4 villain in a video game. Now, I've talked about my types of villains before, so a brief thing. Oh, uh, brief reconnoiter here for those of you not aware. A type 4 villain is the unrepentant, unforgivable evil. 
just no. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend to be a good guy. I don't have some tragic backstory that makes me sympathetic or anything like that. I'm not classically evil and have layers and depths to me or whatever. I am evil. Screw you. Uh, probably one of the most common, uh, well-known examples of a Type 4 villain in fiction would be Voldemort, for example, over in the Harry Potter series. So, <clears throat> so yeah, we, we show up and we, we are a, a Type 4 villain the whole time through. But what I like about this is they do several things throughout the game to try and make it so that we are, aren't completely un uh, horrific, you know? And that's important because if you're playing a character who's just nonstop repugnant, players are going to get pushed off by that. No, seriously. At a certain point, players are going to be like, okay, this, this is, wow. Like, I'm sure there's some players who want to be more horrific, but other players, like myself, for example, are at the point where it's like, okay, this, this is a bit too much. You know, there's, there's lines here. So they bother to add a few extra you know, points to him that give him a second, or just give her, you know, give the boss a second dimension. Adding uh, one positive trait, which I'll talk about in a minute, and adding a general charisma to the performance. Again, the voice acting was a really uh, stellar addition to that. I love the voice acting in 3 and 4 especially, but I digress. And the the thing is, the likability is, is... If you're playing a protagonist you don't like, then you have, you have a flawed game, I'm sorry. So the likability was mandatory. But the biggest thing they do is they add loyalty as a major character trait. The boss legitimately is loyal to the people that he or she is loyal to. Once you've earned that loyalty, that's it. Loyal. The end. And it explains a lot about our character and why they do a lot of the things that they do. By the end of this game, they will be loyal to pretty much all of their central crew and the saints in general. And the boss, of course, is loyal to the saints in general. The boss flat out says several times, I want to be in charge of the city. I want to be at the top of the heap. Better to be the guy on top than to be the guy saying nothing and, and doing what he's told. You remember that? When he's talking to Julius? And speaking of Julius, that's why the boss never forgives Julius. He even flat out says, you want to grow a conscience? Fine, drop your flags and go write a book. But you shouldn't have turned against us. Because Julius crossed the line. And you remember how I mentioned that back with Mero? Mero was basically just doing whatever until we crossed the line, and that was killing Ju uh, Jessica. For the boss, that line that you don't cross is that loyalty. You don't betray. You just don't do that. The moment you do, you're dead. And it's funny because there's some genuinely good chemistry between the boss and Julius, and the two do make a good team, but the boss is utterly unwilling to forgive him for that because he crossed the line. And it's the only line the boss doesn't cross, ever. Once you become a saint, you're part of the crew. The end. One final note before I move forward. One thing I find amusing about this game is... We are, in many ways, the, tame as, the same as Mr. Versetti, I think? The, the main character in Vice City. We accomplish a lot because we're willing to go further than others. But it's a different perspective because... Actually, see, I'm, I'm saying this wrong. Let me, let me rewind that sentence. What I mean is, we end up running the city. But unlike, say, the Joker in Heath Ledger's, uh, you know, Heath Ledger's The Joker in the Nolan trilogy, or unlike the guy I was just mentioning in Vice City, we don't get to the top of the heap because of the fact that we were willing to go further than everyone else. Because we weren't. 
Like, that becomes a character trait after this, which is why I was confusing that in my head. You know, in later Saints Rows, we are willing to go further than anyone else. But in this Saints Row, we're just the ones who survived. And I kind of like that. What this is is a giant pile of just cycle of vengeance and violence that goes through as people are, you know, destroy, 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 destroy. And you remember I mentioned that visual metaphor of us walking away from a smoking heap with Marrow's body on it? That is effectively the boss's rise to power. We, by happenstance, happen to be the one who was alive at the end of, the, uh, at the end of it. With the other three gangs dissembled and disassembled and Ultor under our boot, well, by virtue, we win. Yay. And I find that fascinating in its own way. It's a, and again, it adds more of a grounded nature to the narrative, which I like as well. Which is funny, because I also like Saints Row 4, which is the exact opposite of grounded. It was a treat going through this game again. I hope you've enjoyed my discussions of it. As always, I look forward to seeing your comments. I'll see you guys next time.